everyone, and thank you for checking out this episode of Lighting the Pipes. This will be a short select episode, and we're going to pull from the archives here of our conversations over the years the short story by Ian Fleming called Quantum of Solace, which you may better recognize as the title of Daniel Craig's second outing as James Bond. And Josh, we can say with certainty that that film has very little to do with this story. <laughs> Indeed. It should have been called Casino Royale Part 2 more than anything. But yeah, the story is very different from its yeah. adapted celluloid uh, version. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And we just thought, you know, on the back of the Maltese Falcon, which include a character, Bridget O'Shaughnessy, that we talked quite a lot about in our last episode, we thought it might be, might be interesting to... Um, to share this one with you because it, it contains a woman who, though not certainly not uh, an ice-cold, blonde, femme fatale, does in her own way bring trouble upon herself. Would you say that's, that's, that's accurate? Yeah, I would say so. And the story fits the soft crime atmosphere uh, better than some of the other Bond adventures, which are and can be a little more outlandish and extreme or hyperbolic. This one is a little more quiet and a little more nuanced, and it was a strange addition to the For Your Eyes Only short story collection that was published in 1960. So I wonder if um, if our listeners, indeed, if they've, they've read it before, and if not, then uh, I wonder if they won't like this little discussion we had of it some time ago. I certainly did. I, I really enjoyed this. Well, chat. they're getting it anyway, so <laughs> might as well. <laughs> <laughs> but you gave good anyway, reasons, though, you know, why it's an, anyway, a good example, um, yeah. because uh, going on the back of the Maltese Falcon, talking about femme fatales, you know, their origins and how they were written, and different interpretations of femme fatales, and, and the evolution of black of, widows yeah, and stuff. And, their evolution, and yeah. you get in this right. particular presentation a very familiar, uh-huh. sort of realistic version of a femme fatale you would see in real life um i mean i'm just going to think of thinking of right now yeah, i mean i don't know it's yeah. the same situation but look at uh johnny depp's uh defamation trial with amber heard right i know so i mean there's mm. parallels that can be drawn from mm-hmm. that too right there's just toxic relationships and i don't think there is a quantum of solace in in that particular relationship that's for sure if you ask me but uh <laughs> anyway <laughs> nobody uh, has <laughs> don't like bringing pop culture into literature too much because, I mean, we got to focus at the time that it was written, right? No. But to me, it's a believable presentation of a marriage. And, th- and there is real suffering and it, there. It's probably a very nuanced sorry, sorry. Uh, story that Ian Fleming wrote, I mean, outside of doing spy stories. And even though the story does feature Bond in some capacity, mm-hmm. um, it is sort of an interesting little tidbit of a tale. Yeah. Yeah. It's a neat one. So we hope you enjoy this. It's, it's just a pocket-sized uh, short story adventure, and uh, this won't take you long to get through. Yeah, snack size, commuter size, I think we said in our last episode. Good way to but, put it. Um, we'll be back with a big read very soon. So, yeah, hope you enjoy this uh, uh, from a few years back, a conversation on Quantum of Solace. And I should say, if, if you're into the James Bond stuff, then pop on over to Bond by Numbers, our sister podcast that we do with our buddy Jeff Chapman. Um, we've been doing that for a few years, and uh, great, great stuff over there as well, if you're keen. So thanks, everybody. Take, Take care. care. All right. Well, that's a testament to its uh, awesomeness, I suppose. I suppose you could say that.
All right, Quantum of Solace. <laughs> Nothing to connect the title, in no way any connection to the uh, film version whatsoever. Well, uh, I might dis- I might disagree with you there because I think. Okay, well, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll there get. Could we'll, we'll, there could be. Okay, well, I'm I'm curious to hear your theory. Um, but let's move onwards. Yes. Um, through the narration of the governor of Jamaica, <laughs> Bond, and by extension, we the reader are told the tragic tale of the masters. Philip Masters, a civil servant of noble blood who married an air hostess, Rhoda Llewellyn, and the story of their marriage. It's the solution and the bitterness and revenge that followed it. And it is bitter. It is. Simply, Masters brings his new wife to his new posting in Hamilton, Bermuda. She quickly gets bored and unhappy, so the besotted Masters does everything he can to make her happy. After various attempts of bringing harmony to their marriage and her growing indifference to it, he signs the both of them to the golf club. This exposes this uh, to local golf club. Sorry, uh, this exposes Rhoda to the high society she's looking for, and on the surface, uh, that, that you know the marriage seems to be going fine. But the son of the richest Hamilton merchant family, a well-known playboy, takes over her, and they have a toward and public affair. Uh, Masters is unable to cope with his broken heart and this humiliation. He leaves for England, leaving Rhoda and her entertainments back in Hamilton. Now, by leaving England, I mean that he gets he takes up another posting just to get the hell out of there, mm-hmm. you know, because he can't emotionally deal with the situation. So Rhoda's affair with the young Skyon comes to an end, however, um, either through his choice or through parental influences. Um, and then he goes for the pretty American girls instead. Um, she prepares to make peace with her husband and get back to the old life. But when Philip returns, he shuts her out completely, divorces her. He relegates her to one side of the house. He has her paid through lawyers. Um, when he leaves Bermuda for good, she is passed around, but ends up in a very bad way. And, and many see Master's punishment as treatment of her as disproportionate to the crime. But the governor tells Bond she ended up with a handsome prince, a Canadian millionaire, and was sitting next to Bond the whole time, a woman that he found completely boring. And it's important to note in the story that uh, at the beginning, Bond is so bored of being stuck at, at, at this ha- at this government house in Kingston, you know, just basically with these dull, rich people. And, and he's trying to make some sort of conversation with the governor, but he can't. And the governor can't make conversation with Bond either because he doesn't identify with him either. So Bond's comment about saying, you know, just, just, just to break, you know, break the ice saying, you know, if I was ever to get married, it would be to an air hostess. And this, of course, opens up this whole conversation. And by the end of it, Bond is just is realizing that, you know, maybe I'll go into, um, we're outside of the summary now, but it just goes to show that all lives are not, are, are exciting in their own ways and are just as tragic, you know, and, and different as the kind of life that he leads. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you've done a good job there with the story. It, it, it's very much an experiment. I mean, you, you, you'll know this cause I'm sure you did your reading up on it anyway, but Fleming really liked the writing of uh, Somerset Maw and he wanted to do mm-hmm. a story in that fashion. And, uh, this story was published in Cosmo or what? Modern Woman, one of those. Modern Woman magazine. Yeah, yeah I was kind of surprised. Was, this is like, is this Fleming's uh, attempt at uh, trying to reach another audience? Or I, I don't know. It's so it's it's a pretty failed attempt. It's not a bad written story, but it's so very obviously uh, it didn't need to be a James Bond story. And no, it, but. You know, to do this experiment, nobody would pay attention to it unless Bond was in it. I figure is probably why he decided to do that. I, I think so. He just had Bond as sort of just a character. But I think in a way, this is some kind of the stories that Bond would hear. And these were the kind of things. Uh, but it's kind of funny because at the end of the story, you know, where he says, uh, let's go to, go to the last thing here. Um, uh, where is it here? 
you know, he said, like, so after he hears this, sto- this story, the governor says, so they shook hands. The governor smiled. I'm glad the story interested you. I was afraid you might be bored. You lead a very exciting life, to tell you the truth. I was at my wit's end to know what we would talk about after dinner. Life in the colonial service is very humdrum. They said goodnight. Bond walked off down the quiet street towards the harbor and the British Colonial Hotel. He reflected on the conference he would be having in the morning with the Coast Guards and the FBI in Miami. The prospect, which had previously interested, even excited him, was now edged with boredom and futility. But at the same time... How long would that boredom and fertility last, and how much would his compassion and feeling that he had during this conversation for this couple, uh, how long would that last when he's back into the job again, right? Yeah. So it's, it's, yeah. it's almost like a brief moment where Bond just mm-hmm. reflects, you know? And I think Fleming using that story and putting his character Bond in it was kind of an interesting experiment. I think most, I think as a whole, I think it paid off. I, I was kind of compelled by the whole storyline in general, and I kind of wanted to see its resolution. I thought it was going to end up with her killing him or vice versa, you know? So I was curious to see what the resolution was to the story. The story that he's told is very interesting. I mean, it, it feels like a, a Henry James-type episode, you know, like an after-dinner story, and, and Bond yeah. is just the guy. I mean, there's two stories in this collection where Bond is just sitting basically as an observer, you know? Um, the other one is the Hildebrand rarity, which... Well, in, in part, anyway. And, you know, he's not the action man. He's the one who's kind of sitting back and, and, and listening to others take the lead or watch others take the lead. And in this story, you know, I, I thought it was interesting. I didn't at all not enjoy reading the story. I just didn't think that... Well, actually, that's not true. I'm lying. I, I kind of did find it boring in places. I didn't understand why this was a Bond story. I have no problem with Fleming wanting to experiment, but... I don't think James Bond is going to walk away from this experience a changed man. It is a morality. It, it is a morality tale. It's clearly um, Bond being given an opportunity to reflect on his profession versus yeah. the, the everyday dangers of every other person. But exactly, I, I don't. I don't see. I don't. I don't. I don't see what's wrong with that kind of experimentation outside of outside of Fleming's regular formula. In my opinion, in his works, he. I think he would have been much richer and appreciated more by people like Anthony Boucher if he went mm-hmm. into this into these things. As I recall, Boucher actually liked this story in, in his review. Well. There's nothing wrong with Fleming wanting to do a story like this, but it's not a James Bond story. If we're looking, no. to, if we're looking to to uh, you know to approximate its success according to our formula, then it's almost impossible. And I mean, I've made that note here that the low score of the story for me reflects the fact that this isn't a typical Bond story, and so yes. the, mar- the marking index is kind of inherently flawed if you're trying to apply it to this. Yeah, I I kind of. Yeah, I kind of went into that a little bit too, um, in the sense of when I was when I was reviewing it, you know, with the angle, you know, how how do we review this, you know, in terms of it? So I try to get some a system that would work in my mind to see if I could apply that system to it. So I gave it a try. So did you want to hear it to uh, see how I sort of put this together? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, it's over the angle. Okay, uh, the governor. So, so, so we can look at the adver- adversaries and allies in this regard, I should say. Okay. Um, so for the allies or adversaries, the governor is both. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, I did. I did look at it that way too. Yeah, the, for telling Bond the story and forcing him to come to self-reflection, perhaps. Um, maybe an ally, Lady Burford, for Rhoda. Uh, adversaries, Rhoda and Philip, for being both asses. Mm. Uh, the Hamilton Mercantile Scion, is he an adversary? Like, mm, I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, he's more of a plot device than anything. But he is. He's a plot device. Yeah. 
But I don't know. I gave Adversaries and Allies a three. That's, that's, what, I, that's what I gave it as well. <laughs> and we got the narrative, right? So a tragic fable for Bond that shines a light on his own character. He's able to see the, 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 even the normies lead interesting lives and have to make difficult decisions, though different than the ones he has to make in the field. Not to mention that regular people with all their pettiness and grudges and other idiosyncrasies, they can be just as cruel and as menacing as, as any adversary he's discovered in that way. And I thought that was a strong part of it. I gave that a four. Wow, okay. I gave it a three. Um, I thought it was a little too gimmicky for my liking um, and a little too conveniently, uh, you know, positioned. I, I don't know. I didn't see the story as a revelatory in that way. This It's not the first time that Bond would have had a taste of real human life and a more a moral you know, uh, ethical type of scenario. But where has Fleming had this this similar situation in a book before with like a, seeing like the lives of, of regular people and identifying with them? Can you name me an instance like in the other books where he does that? <laughs> not not under pressure like this, no, but um, fair enough. So you're also looking at the novelty of it. And okay, I appreciate that. Okay. But I don't appreciate um, it enough to change it from a three. To be honest, I'm actually I shocked that rushed. you dislike this story, actually. I thought you would really like this story, but I guess I was wrong there. I, I didn't mind the storytelling, but style is important to me as well. And I didn't think that there were enough opportunities within the governor's, uh, you know, narration, if you'll take that. Bond, you know, he, he could have jumped back and looked at Bond's reaction. Bond could have asked a question. I mean, I know that Bond was bored, but as he – Fleming does break a couple of times back to, uh, you know, to the, the the two men in the room and lighting a new cigar or leaning back in a chair. And I thought more could have been done to bring Bond into that story in those moments. You see, I kind of like the establishment of Bond being an outsider in this way okay. too because there's that whole section where he's trying to make talk with the governor – even when, it, when the governor's telling the story at the beginning and Bond, you know, alludes to like sex and stuff like that for the problems, like saying like, oh, black women are beautiful, but you don't want to use birth, con- make sure you're using birth control or something like that, right? And uh-huh. and the governor just said like, this guy's a bit of an asshole, you know? So, <laughs> so I don't know, I kind of like I kind of like that, that how the, the natural flow of the conversation and whatnot and kind of the respect that both men had by the end of the conversation. Like, I found Bond made like a connection back to regular society here than he normally wouldn't have and even though he found you know Rhoda very boring as the Canadian millionaire's wife he saw that you know there is something behind everyone and I don't know like I just found that this was I I just found it was a bit revelatory in that way not revelatory wrong wrong word um illuminating 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 okay all right well what what did you give Rhoda oh Rhoda as a girl um I gave her a four. Holy I, sh! You gave her a four. Yeah, I found her quite a character. She's one of Fleming's fallen women. Usually, she's different from Tiffany Case and Pussy Galore in that they weren't raped and became strong women. Um, she was youthful in spirit and selfish, and she paid dearly for, for that. Wow. But still ends up on top anyway. She was a good player of the game oh, in that geez. regard. So then again, you have Fleming taking her down again by reducing her to basically being a. He, because remember they, he mentioned about her how like she fell on bad times after Philip left, and she basically almost became a whore. Well, yes. The, the irony is, is that that's basically what she still is, essentially. Well, like, yeah, in, in her, she's just she's just moved. Like she hasn't, like, yeah. she hasn't learned. I mean, she, she she's now married to Harvey Miller, this Canadian natural, still, natural it, gas millionaire. But in her respect, what's her? Yeah, she's, she's like with the Irving family now or something. Um, <laughs> like what? 
in terms of it's like in terms of she's come out quite successful. I mean, we can we can argue whether or not that's morally right, or you know, if it's if her situation is ethical where she is right now, that's a different story. But she didn't end up on top again. And Philip, I mean, with all his pettiness and his righteousness, uh, you know, he, he basically died in Africa. You know, he so, was a, he was a dick, and she was a she was a user. I mean, I, I don't yeah. I don't I, I can't see behind those um, those caricatures. I mean, to me, it's. It's really transparent. I mean, there's nothing really in her character. I, I, to call her one of Fleming's best fallen women, no way. Yeah. I, I, I love that you're that you're you're going in this direction, man. But I can't, I can't follow. This is the you. problem with these short stories: is that, I mean, uh, is that when you're analyzing them, when you're analyzing them, you're trying to re- re- see them as feature length novels. So you try to put a bit more, you try to look for more nuances in the characters, maybe than you should. And maybe that was my failure here. I don't not think, my failure, yeah, but my overstepping my own um, the limitation that the narrative was offering me. I think you are giving. Okay, listen. I think you're giving Quantum of Solace a lot of credit, and you're giving it attention that it deserves, critically and analytically. Just just because I don't agree with you, and I don't like, I, I don't have a problem with Fleming experimenting. But if he's yeah. going to experiment with James Bond, give me more than three paragraphs at the end of the story where he resp- where he responds to it. Like mm. I, I don't see the big Bond reflection because there's only so little of him at the end. He just kind of has a cheeky smile as he walks home in the dark after having a few drinks. Like yeah. that's not enough of a character change or a reflection for me to say, wow, this was a, a moment for Bond to really take stock of himself. Like, Fair enough. I'm not, I'm not coming at you, man, at all for giving yeah. the story praise. I think that you're really going at it with a nice surgical tooth. I'm just saying, for me, there ain't enough of it in there. Uh, and I'm not going to follow you there. But, yeah, I think it's great that we're having a different opinion of this story. Um, yeah. I, I gave her a 2.5. Um, look, in the spirit of brevity, let's move on. Locations. Eh. Two. I went two for locations. A failing arc. I was three, but okay. I thought Hamilton Society was captured well in the story and it whatnot. Was. And yes, the, it was. And the, and the strata of like of, of, of that, but locale wise, there wasn't really much there at all. Nothing too exotic or exciting. Now equipment one. <laughs> I put two. The crappy car with overdue payments that Philip just wrote his guts. I knew you would do the car. I knew you would. <laughs> and the radiator too. Why not, eh? Shit. Okay, it's a right. Radiator. So you went for sixteen in total, and I went for uh, what's that? Four plus one is five, and eight is thirteen point five. Is what I've got. I got two for uh, equipment, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, I got you there. You're sixteen in total, and I'm thirteen point five in total. Right. Well, neither one of us really loved this story, but you found it more novel and interesting. Now, listen. Well, one thing we're going to talk about really quickly before we move on is this idea of the, 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 the title, the quantum of solace, which the governor explains is the term that he's come up with to describe the minimal amount of comfort or respect necessary in a relationship in order to maintain its survival, right? So yeah. when the quantum of solace between two people has been lost, then the relationship is is doomed because you don't care if the other person's alive basically now the reason i think there's a connection to the film is because i think we are meant to consider and maybe i'm giving i think daniel craig said it's just a good title but um i think maybe it's too much credit but if you think about bond uh and vesper's character relationship at this point maybe that's meant that that's where he says her you know the is dead that type of thing maybe that's truly what he's trying to say and that's why the title's there could be 
Could be, yeah. That's that's my best hit. But anyway, uh, let's move away from Quantum of Solace, that experiment which kind of worked uh, in some ways, but not really in others. (laughs) 